Second Samuel chapter 15, we finished last time with chapter 14, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, currently in the book of Second Samuel. And as you turn to chapter 15, I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you're here with us, and apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, and we really need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding so that we could make sense of the truth that you have for us and, and Lord, want to put it into practice and be blessed. We, we pray toward that end. Holy Spirit, show us Jesus and the wonderful things you have for us in your word. In your name we pray, amen. Well, there's this uh, wonderful scripture that we all have heard um, in Hebrews chapter 12 that says, uh, for the moment, All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And the discipline in question there is discipline from the Lord, spiritual discipline or chastisement where God allows us to kind of reap uh, the trouble that we've sown and to learn from it and to grow. It's a well-known verse. So, I could paraphrase it this way, no one likes getting a spanking from God, it's painful, but, um, but when you straighten out your life because of that and live in a right way, you will enjoy great peace. So that's a nice paraphrase. The writer to the Hebrews um, really tags this encouragement onto the verse from Proverbs that we read together from Proverbs chapter uh, 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't get tired or overwhelmed when he corrects you, for the Lord corrects and chastises those he loves, and he punishes every child whom he receives. In other words, the Lord loves us enough to teach us and to help us to live along the straight and narrow path. Um, The Lord through Nathan, uh, the prophet, told David that he had some spiritual discipline coming. And in chapter 12, it was after the whole Bathsheba affair and um, the murder of her husband. And uh, the Lord said, because you've despised me. Very interesting when we um, do very unconscionable things that we know are the wrong things. And, and we, we as Christians know better that the Lord sees that as despising him and, and our relationship with him. But he said, because, David, you've despised me and have uh, taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, then you're going to have these kinds of troubles. And so he said, because of your unrestrained lust and your unnecessary violence, uh, it's rubbed off on some of your kids. And you're going to be seeing this as they grow into men. And you're going to have repercussions, ongoing trouble in your own household. Um, He said, furthermore, it's going to be public uh, humiliation and violence and a thorn in your side. And so we've already seen some of that, haven't we? Amnon, uh, his firstborn son, uh, uh, violated sexually his half-sister Tamar. And then third-born son, half-brother to Amnon, uh, has a revenge uh, murder there. And uh, so Absalom, in other words, murders his half-brother. And so now it's even going to get worse here in chapter 15, all the way to chapter 18, and, and about 18, verse 15. The paddle is going to come down now on, on David and his family in the form of number three son, Absalom. He's, he's really the rebellious one, and uh, he's going to be causing all the trouble. So uh, Absalom's all about himself. We already heard that he's praised for being the most handsome man in the entire country. He's the tallest guy. He has the greatest head of hair. And and the Bible described him as without a flaw. Just the perfect kind of Fabio kind of guy. And so he was praised for his good looks. Now we got four and a half chapters of a coup like a coup d'etat, a a murderous attempt to overthrow King David. And guess who it's going to be led by? 
this Mr. Wonderful, Absalom, his own flesh and blood. And so here beginning in chapter 15, at the moment, the crown prince, Mr. Absalom, is playing nice, nice. Now, you'll recall, just get a little context about what's going on with this kid and King David, his father. Uh, after the revenge killing, after he killed his half-brother for raping his full sister, uh, Absalom fled to Grandpa, who was a king. Absalom's mother's father was that king, king of Syria. So Absalom had a hiding place, and he hung out there in exile uh, because he had killed his brother, who was a crown prince as well. And he was no doubt pampered by his grandfather, king in Syria. And he hung out there for three years. Now, the commander of David's army, Joab, was pressuring David to bring Absalom back. He just felt like it was, it was too much of, uh, of a threat to have someone like Absalom in ex exile. So he wanted him to come back, and he pressured David. David finally agreed, but he won't see him for another two years. David said, he can come back to Israel, but I don't want him in my presence. And so for two years, that was the case. And you remember that uh, Absalom, now the crown prince, he's back in Israel. Through extortion, he strong arms Joab again to go back to David and say, what good is it? I'm back. I can't even go in the palace. It's like being under house arrest. So he burns down Joab's field to get Joab under threat of violence to going back to the king to get this kid reconciled back to his father. And so that happens. David softens. And the last verse of chapter 14 was about David softening his heart and a tearful father-son reunion. So King David, last we heard, and this bad boy Absalom were in each other's arms and reconciled. But it won't take us long to figure out that Absalom has ulterior motives for the reunion. And so uh, Absalom is going to get what he wants. And what, what does Absalom want? He wants closer reach to the throne of Israel. OK, so they're embraced. That's the last thing we heard. Chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. After this, the tearful reunion, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Of course you would. All right, that, that's not in the text. Verse 5. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So let's pause there. If you're taking notes, I'd call this part Operation King Me. You know when you're playing checkers and you want to be crowned king, you just cry out with a great joy in your heart. <laughs> king Me. All right, well, uh, it doesn't take long now for us to see that this is what this kid wants. His true motives are revealed. He's out for the throne. And uh, really, you know, all of this, I want to be with my dad, I want to be with my dad, I want to get reconciled. You cannot trust anything out of a self-centered person. You just can't ever believe them because they have an agenda. And the agenda is getting what they want and manipulating and controlling and all of that. And so you never know. You never know. Does he really want to get back with his dad or not? And uh, David, it seems like he kind of knows what's up. Uh, but he softens his heart, and they have the reunion. And now we, we see what's going on. 
Now, Absalom seems to be the heir apparent, as we say, next in line for the throne. So, Absalom, why don't you just wait? Dad is in his uh, 50s, 60s. He only lives to 70. Why can't you just wait and, and ascend to the throne the right way? You know, well, self-centered people filled with pride, they want to call the shots. They don't want to wait. You remember, I just saw uh, little friends of ours in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, a little play they put on in Sebastopol from The Real Deal. And uh, you remember Veronica Salt in there, the blueberry girl? You know, she was like, Daddy, I want it, and I want it now. And you just love to not like her. <laughs> and uh, that's what Absalom is like. He wants the throne, and he wants it now like the prodigal. The prodigal, look, man, whatever Dad has for you in inheritance, it's coming. Just let the guy die. Oh, no, no, Dad, I want it now because you're as good as dead, and I want it, and I want it now, kind of thing. And this is what this, this Absalom is all about, is, is that I want to be king. I want it on my terms. I don't want to wait. I want what I want, and I want it now. And you're in the way of what I want, Dad, so I'm going to have to kill you, get you out of the way, so that I can have my throne. You know, James chapter 3, verse 16 is not exaggerating when it says selfish ambition. Uh, with selfish ambition, you will find every evil practice. It's kind of like the Pandora's box. When you're all self-absorbed, the me, myself, and I thing, it just, you're capable of anything, you know. Most of us don't go that far, but it's the root of that kind of thing. And given the right situation, terrible. So Operation King Me has many steps to it, especially when you don't want to appear power hungry and self-absorbed like a tyrant. So he's got to get to the throne, but he wants to make it uh, look as wonderful as possible, not like he tried to steal the throne from his father. So that, that's going to take some thinking. All right, so step number one, create the right image. Notice in verse one, Absalom doesn't receive a chariot and horses and bodyguard of 50 men who announce his royal presence in the marketplace or wherever he goes. Notice in verse one, it says, Absalom gets it for himself. So the first thing he does in his little scheming, manipulative way is to uh, start uh, making an image for himself. And so, sadly, the world of politics is kind of like that. It attracts the power-hungry. Not everybody is corrupt and power-hungry in politics. Uh, you know, I, it was refreshing back in 2010, wasn't it, when we saw um, Scott Brown from Massachusetts. He was elected as senator representing Massachusetts. And the big deal was he was an ordinary guy. He dressed like an ordinary guy, and he drove this 2005 GMC pickup. That was, that was just amazing. And he went to Washington with his pickup truck, and he had 200,000 miles on it. You know, unlike some, as soon as they get to Washington, they need the, the limo, the new suit, the shades, the special kind of um, briefcase, and, and to have handlers. You've got to have handlers all around you so that people can think you're somebody important, you know. So, uh, you know, the first thing he does is create the image. So Absalom was kind of like the latter, you know, notice me. I'm somebody special, be impressed with me because I've got a chariot, some horses, and 50 guys who run in front of me, my bodyguards. And so, you know, Jesus is our example. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, though you should, you should think of yourself like Jesus. Jesus was equal to God in every way. He's the God man. Yet he did not consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage. Rather, even though he's God, God Almighty in a body, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. 
So he takes the form of a servant, emptying himself and becoming nothing. If, if that's what God is all about, who are we to try to impress anybody? Jesus, the Lord, who spoke the worlds into being, did not try to impress people. So Operation King Me, notice me. And so he gets the chariots and the horses. And interestingly, you know, uh, the bad guys always are said in the Bible as having horses and chariots uh, as status symbols. But the Lord was not big on chariots and horses for Israel. They weren't supposed to accumulate them. For one thing, back in the Exodus, the Lord was afraid they would use the horses to go back to Egypt. And so they weren't allowed to have horses in the beginning. And, uh, you know, David and Samuel weren't the limo types either. They, they stayed away from horses and chariots and all of that. In fact, David wrote in Psalm uh, 20 in verse 7, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. But Absalom, he needs the horses, he needs the chariots, and he needs a big bodyguard around him. Uh, David was a pickup truck kind of guy. Absalom is the stretch limo kind of dude, all right? So step one was create the image. To create an image about yourself is really important, especially when there's no character. Because human nature is a sucker for image and will take image over character every single time. And so step two, schmooze. To schmooze, you know what that means. It's a Yiddish term, and Yiddish is a Europeanized Hebrew. And so to schmooze means to chat it up in order to gain an advantage or make a social connection. It's a little bit like flattery. Um, so notice, I don't know if you notice or not, but in the exile psalms, the psalms that David wrote during this time of being chased by his own kid, uh, he wrote a few psalms. And in those psalms, he's ill. He's physically sick. Did you notice that? He talks a lot about being physically ill in those Psalms. So what's happening here, the scholars say, is that Absalom is taking advantage. The king is sick and he's not easily accessible to the public and he's not seen a lot. So Absalom goes, yeah, this is perfect. Um, in ancient times, the king and the royal court was kind of like the Supreme Court. And so many people felt like they didn't get justice locally. They could appeal and have their cases heard by the king himself. So Absalom, dad's sick in bed. He's not around. Perfect. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take advantage. I'm going to get up at oh dark 30, and I'm going to go down to the gate and head off all disgruntled Israelites who come for justice to the king's palace. I'm going to head them off at the pass, and I'm going to treat them like old friends. And so you notice the schmoozing starts. He takes interest, and, and, and here's what's going on in the Hebrew. He, he's saying, hey, where are you from? I'm showing interest. Hey, man, where are you from, brother? And, and the brother goes, oh, wow. The, the crown prince Absalom's talking to me. Well, actually, I'm from, I'm from this tiny little village in Gad. Gad, you don't say. Man, I, I got a cousin out there. There's nothing like the rolling green hills of Gad. Those farmers out there, they're wonderful. I've been there many times. And the guy's like, wow. Oh, that's that's something else. You know, he's warm, he's personable, he's caring. And then amazingly, everybody's case ha was valid. So, so every time verse 3, it says, your claims are good and right. In other words, he's saying to everybody, regardless of who it is, he says, hey, you've got a really strong case here, man. It's like, oh, wow. So play with me a little bit here, okay? So imagine, because uh, a lot of those cases were without merit. All right, they were not all good and right and strong standing. So here's this guy, he comes in from Gad, and he says, uh, he says well, what can I help you with? And he says, well, I, I bought this yoke of oxen, and I just couldn't feed them all very well, and they got sick and died, and I want to get my money back, man. And so Absalom says, man, that's terrible. That's awful. Yes, indeed. 
you need to get your money back. You have a solid case. And then another guy speaks up and he says, you know what? I had too much to drink one night, as guys often do. You know, Absalom. And I got a little frisky with my neighbor's wife. And the husband socked me right in the nose. Take a look at it. It's a little crooked now. Look at this. My looks are changed forever. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with his nose. All right. So he looks at it. He examines it. He touches it. And he says, man, wow. That's unbelievable. If anybody knows how important good looks are, it would be me, the most handsome man in Israel. You got a case here, buddy. You know, who's, we're expecting you to go around with a little crooked nose like that? Yeah, and for what? You hardly even did anything. This is the kind of thing he was doing. He was stealing their hearts away from his father, David just awful. And so the, the ruse of the schmooze was fully employed and hearts are melting like butter. And, you know, Proverbs chapter 29 says, to flatter friends is to lay a trap for their feet. Uh, do you wonder what that means? What does that mean? When I flatter somebody, I'm laying a trap for their feet because I'm trapping you into giving me something that I want from you. So I'm trapping you into in this and telling you what you want to hear so you'll give me what I want. Well, what is it that Abs wants? I call him Abs sometimes, you know. So what does he want? He wants free PR. He wants the guy from Gad to go back and tell everybody in the village, Man, oh man, this good-looking crown prince, Absalom, he asked me all about myself. He asked me about where I live, and, and he thought I had a strong case, and what a great guy. Just, that's what he wants. So it's time for step three, create dissatisfaction with the current administration. So here's the paraphrase. Man, you got an awesome case. Too bad, and notice, the king hasn't put anyone in place to care about you. That's what he says. Man, oh man, if only I could be judge. Oh, I don't want to be king. I just want to be a humble judge to hear the people and to give the disenfranchised, the poor, the trodden down like you, sir, justice. That's what I want to do, right? Yeah, can you hear him? I hear him. I don't know why I hear him so clearly. <laughs> I would make sure that everyone got what they deserved. And so, um, you know, so here's what he says. You could have made a killing. Oh, but you're going home with nothing. Now, if I were a judge, you'd be going home rich and vindicated. Oh, but you'll have to go back to Gad because the king, oh, he doesn't care. He didn't put any, where is he? Has anybody even seen him? Oh, yeah, he's my dad. I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay, the icing on the cake, oh, just wonderful. Uh, when people approached the crown prince, they would come to bow, right? And he grabbed them from bowing and straightened them up. Oh, you don't need to do that. I'm just an ordinary people person like you. And then he'd give him one of those Middle Eastern air kisses on both sides, you know. But the, the funny thing for me is they go to bow, and he grabs them and says, oh, no, you straighten up. You don't have to do that. Uh, just, and then he kisses them. Oh, that kiss thing. The enemies love to kiss. Uh, that's what it says in Proverbs, doesn't it? It says that an enemy lathers on kisses. Here's a, uh, here's a commentator on this verse. From what we know about Absalom, we can guess that he really didn't consider himself a man of the people at all. He regularly acted as if he was above others, and the laws that applied uh, to others didn't apply to him. He knew he was better looking, better connected, and better off, and had better political instincts than most anyone else. But these political instincts made Absalom know that he had to create the image of being a man of the people. 
And so, no need to bow and treat me like royalty. I'm just one of the guys. All right, so Prince Fabio and his Judas-type heart. You know, Judas was into the kiss, too. It's just something about the Judas kind of thing. They kind of hide their anger and their malicious hearts through the kiss. Now, uh, he st- verse 6, he steals the hearts of the men of Israel. What good is someone's love and adoration if you had to win it over through lying and manipulation? What, what, I don't understand it. You know, so everybody loves you, but it's all based on a lie. I don't, I don't get that. Now, uh, I'm sure that some were on to him, but Absalom's evil intentions were so subtle. So, you know, people say, hey, man, I, I can see what you're up to here. And here's what David Guzik said about that. Absalom's clever approach made him able to subvert and divide David's kingdom without saying any specific thing that could condemn him. I love this. If someone objected, Absalom would simply say, Tell me one specific thing that I have said or done that's wrong. And really, go through it. You pull it out. You're the one who sounds crazy. That's how manipulative people are. They they weave this web to get what they want, to accomplish their purpose. And then if you accuse them or pull anything out, you're the one who looks uh, stupid. And so he found a way to get everything done without implicating himself as the self-centered kind of guy that he is. Seven through 12. And at the end of four years of this nonsense, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gershur, Syria, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem, now now follow this, who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. Hmm. Verse 12, and while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city in Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Okay, number two, Absalom makes his big move. Now, he's not very patient when it comes to waiting on God for God's will to come to pass, but he can manage to hold out for a long time if it means getting what his sinful heart wants. And so now it's been four years he's doing the schmoozing at the gate. And after four years, he figures out, you know what, I I think I've created enough disgruntlement in Israel and enough affection toward me. I think I'm at the right levels. I think I can actually pull this off and have a chance at success. And it all begins with a big fat lie to his father. And so he gets, uh, he gets before his father, the king. And here's a paraphrase, seven and eight. Dad, King Dad, <laughs> I'd like permission to go to Hebron. You see, I made this vow. You know, back in the day when I was in exile, I was in trouble, I was hiding out with grandpa. Well, I made this vow. And the vow was, if God ever let me come back to Israel, I would give him this big offering in Hebron. Can I go and fulfill that? David's response, sweet. David knows. David's not dumb. Doesn't say David knows. David's smart. And I'll tell you why. There are two reasons David knows. Number one, he says to go in peace, but his eyebrows go up a little bit. Um, Here's why. Depending on what point in Absalom's exile that we're in when he makes the vow, do you know how many years? Let's do the math. Three years in Syria, 
Then he's got two years under house arrest, right? And now it's been four years schmoozing at the gate. That's nine years. So dad, you know, <laughs> nine years ago, I'm just suddenly remembering right now. You know, nine years ago, I just said one day, I was just thinking, man, if God ever brings me back to my homeland, oh, Lord, I'd throw a big party for you and an offer over in Hebron, which coincidentally is where you, Dad, were anointed king. Hebron's famous. Why? Israel's first king anointed. And a big party there. So he says, I just want to go to Hebron because it just... It just dawned on me that I made a vow nine years ago. And David goes, go in peace. It just made me think of Judas and our Lord Jesus, who is a descendant of David. He is the God man. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. But as a man, he's related to King David. And at the table, the Lord Jesus looks at Judas and and says, Judas, go and do quickly what it is you need to do. Just with peace, because, because David and Jesus have more trust in God with their destiny than the power of some power-hungry, greedy person who means to do them harm. God is bigger. And he's able to look right through them and say, go in peace. And he went to bed, he's, he's, he, he sang his psalms, said his prayers, went to bed in peace because he trusts in the Lord. Ironically, go in peace will be the last words Absalom hears from his father. Because Absalom is going to have a tragic, tragic end. The last time they see each other is when Absalom says, I want your throne and I'll do anything to get you off of it, like kill you. And his father says, go in peace. Sad. Now, um, divisive people never usually see themselves as divisive. They see themselves as crusaders for God's righteous cause and often think that God is actually with them and blessing them. So he, Absalom, in his heart, he thinks, I'm gonna go to Hebron because that's where a king should be made. King, And so he thinks he's doing the right thing. So he goes to Hebron. It's 20 miles away. Uh, he's behind now fortified walls of Hebron. And guess who he's got with? He's got 200 key people from David's uh, team. He handpicked them, 200 of them, as invited guests so that when the coup started, David's most important 200 of his key soldiers and diplomats and counselors will be gone. Where are they? They're trapped as hostages behind the wall at Hebron. They had no clue. The crown prince said, hey, you want to come with me? I had this whole vow thing, you know. Hampix invites them. And then now, when he's going to spring a trap on his father, his father's not going to have enough power to defend himself. This is what's going on here. They had no clue. And so it's a huge move. At the feast, Absalom invites, and this is key, he invites a man named Ahithophel, who was David's counselor, a big, important person. So everybody looks around and says, hey, man, Ahithophel's here. This is, this is cool. This is legit. I mean, if, if he's here now, uh, verse 12, the conspiracy spreads like wildfire, and the scholars say that Ahithophel is not only attends, but he defects, and he's probably the mastermind behind the whole entire thing. Now, 2 Samuel uh, 23 and 34 will tell you a huge clue here. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Ahithophel has had this bitterness in his heart for years. Uriah the Hittite was Ahithophel's grandson-in-law. And he's carried this thing. If David never violated Bathsheba and killed his grandson-in-law and violated his granddaughter, 
This whole plot, scholars say, would not have happened because who's pushing? It is Absalom, but he's got Ahithophel behind him. And so this is just a huge thing. 13 through 23, and a messenger came to David, here we go, saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left 10 concubines, which are kind of like legal mistresses, unfortunately, to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, Absalom, for you are a foreigner and an, and, and an exile from your own home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And... David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittai passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. All right, so number three, uh, the cat's out of the bag. David's told of the coup, and so the, the cry comes out, we need to flee. Verse 13, um, he's told Israel's heart is with Absalom. When you talk about Israel in that way, it's the army. So Absalom wants the throne and the army's totally devoted to Absalom. So David's stuck. What is he going to do? He's thinking, well, 200 of his key men are gone and he doesn't have the firepower to withstand him. And if he stays and tries to fight, it, Jerusalem's going to be a bloodbath. Uh, and Absalom will kill all his brothers and all the king's children. He has a lot of them. He'll kill them all because they're all potential rivals to the throne. So he says, we, the only one thing I can see here is let's get out of here. And so they pack up really quickly. The loyal staff, you hear that. And then on the outskirts, the last house there on the eastern border before the wilderness starts, he just kind of stops and lets everybody go in front of him. And this, this wonderful exchange from 18 to 23, special mention to these foreigners who show this kind of loyalty. 600 of the old school guard from the days when David was fleeing Saul. And, and they're from the Philistine territory. They're, they're Gentiles. And so David, the Holy Spirit just wants to give a shout out to these guys. And, and here's, here's a quote I, I, about this passage. You know, it's easy to stand with someone who's popular and has a lot going on for them. But much harder to stand loyal when it might cost you something, when the person loses popularity, and in this case, his own army, countrymen, and son. These foreigners have the best excuse to leave David in the lurch, but instead they put their necks on the line with him, not at the height of his career, but when he's in trouble, the whole world is turned against him and the Holy Spirit wants to honor these men in particular. So there's a little passage. And I really think that God likes it when we stick it out with a good person, a good person who comes under attack and despite the pressure to go with the flow and when we put principle ahead of um, 
what's going on with the world and how the, the world slanders somebody, but to stand with them, uh, 24 through 31. So they're fleeing. Now, Abiathar comes up, and behold, Zadok comes with him and all the Levites. So the two high priests, and along with the priests, the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him, God, do with me what, he seems, what seems good to him. So the king said also to Zadok the priest, are you not a prophet? Go back to the city in peace with you, two, with your two sons, uh, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, with these two sons, all right? See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark back to Jerusalem, and they remained there, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. All right, so we're almost wrapping up here. Number four, the priests get involved. Now they say, hey, David, the kid may have your throne, but you know what? We've got God's throne right here. The Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's dwelling place and throne. So the priests, the two names, Abiathar and Zadok, they're carrying the Ark. They come up behind and they say, no doubt, they're offering sacrifices and seeking God. And David says, you know what? I'm not going to use the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. If it's God's will for me to return, what a sight. What an awesome sight for me to see. As I come back into Jerusalem, I'm going to see it there. If it's God's will and he's pleased with me, and if he's not, and it kind of in the Hebrew means if he's done with me, if this is the end, I deserve this. I kind of brought this whole thing on. I know that. And let God do as he sees fit with my life. And you know what I like about David kind of senses especially because he's told right now, hey, Ahithophel is conspiring against you. Now he starts weeping. Now he covers his head, takes off his shoes mourning. Why? Because he knows grandpa of Bathsheba. I get it. This is all, and the words, there's going to be a sword in your own family and trouble. And he's cooperating even as God is disciplining him. And sometimes we think, you know, I brought this mess on myself, so I'm not going to ask God for any help because I deserve this. That's not what we see David do. David cries out for mercy anyway, even though he's the one who made the mess. God's love and God's mercy is something else. And I think we should always make ourselves available to be blessed and to cooperate. So when we've messed up and we're kind of, we've made our bed and we have to lie on it, cooperate with God. It'll go faster. And, and a lot of good will come out of it. Instead, when, when the paddle comes down, we start to get mad. We get our attitude. We isolate. We, we start dragging our heels. David doesn't do that. David's smarter. Let's get through this period of discipline by cooperating and mourning and owning it up and confessing and praying. And at the top of the hill, he's worshiping the Lord. Who worships the Lord when you're, you're in trouble like that? We worship the Lord when we're happy and blessed and praising him. It's so hard to worship the Lord when, when we're feeling pinched and squeezed and chastised. David just knows, look, the smart thing to do here, always, in every situation, whether it's good or bad, high or low, valley or mountaintop, just praise him and cooperate with him. It'll always come out better. Amen? Yeah. 
The answer is always yield to the Lord, surrender to his will, and worship and love him. You can't go wrong with that. And so he says, listen, you two guys are, are, are prophets. Take the ark back and go back there. And now your two sons, I have a slide to help you because this helps me. On Team David, you've got Abiathar, he's a priest, and his, John, and his John son, and his son Jonathan, and Zadok, the priest, and his son, all right? So now we've got four guys right there, and we're going to meet Hushai in just a second, right? So he tells the two priests, Abiathar and Zadok, go back to the palace. You guys are prophets. You, you could work as undercover agents for me. All right? And so when you get information, tell your boys. Your boys are a little bit younger and faster. They'll come sneak out and come and give me the information. So go back, all four of you. All right? So that's what's happening. You can leave that on there, and you can turn on the lights. They can still see it uh, because we're going to meet another guy here too. But verse 30 and 31, just up the Mount of Olives he goes, um, crying and weeping, fleeing from, from his own son, you know, just, just terrible. Um, he, he's weeping. Uh, the taking, the covering the head and the bare feet are just symbols of um, being in mourning. Alexander McLaren uh, said a couple things about that verse. He said, this wasn't a pity party or uh, merely just uh, crying over the consequences of sin. He's crushed by the consciousness that his punishment is deserved. The bitter fruit of the sin filled all his later life with darkness. His courage and his confidence had left him, and yet he hopes in the Lord. Now, he's written Psalm 3, Psalm 41, Psalm 61, Psalm 62, and Psalm 63 about this time. So when you read those Psalms, Psalm 3, 61, 62, 63, and I believe it's 41 as well. When you read those, that's what he's in the middle of being hunted down by Israel's army and his own son. So he does pray, please frustrate Ahithophel's counsel, and God did. Let's finish up, 32 to the end, and we'll be done. While David was coming to the summit, so the top of the Mount of Olives, where we'll be in two weeks, some of us, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, a Gentile, a friend, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Oh, he's mourning with David. David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you'll defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. That's a hard name to say. 35. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to the, those two guys. And behold, their two sons are with them there. There are their names. And by them, you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. And that's where we need the music to come on. Because just as he's entering, do you know how close they are? They're one mile apart. They're, that's a 30-minute walk. You see? And so the music starts up because it's only the grace of God that Absalom doesn't know he's one hill away. David is one little hill away. And all, everything could be tragically over. So the Bible does say in wrapping up, wise to be wise as serpents, Jesus told us, and meek as doves. David worships here, good times and bad. And one of the answers to his prayers there at the top of the Mount of Olives is a best friend shows up. Can you imagine just seeing your best friend show up in your time of grief and you're just miserable and, and there he is. And he says, here's the deal, friend. If you stay with me, I'm going to be worried and anxious. Your, your life is in harm's way. Here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to go back to the palace. I already have four guys in place. I want you to be number five. And, and this guy is really important because the other four don't live in the palace. This guy, Hushai, will live in the palace. So he says, man, I want you to go in there. And Ahithophel will always be giving advice. And I want you to give other advice that frustrates what Ahithophel is saying. And so these four guys, and now five, are taking their lives in their hands by going back and, and playing a game and, and putting on a show for, for King, uh, King Absalom. And so uh, you just see this, this, this wonderful uh, loyalty and uh, sacrifice uh, and friendship. It's just a beautiful thing. God is with David, and David just needs to trust and stay submitted. So here's some reflections, a, a one-minute takeaway from this chapter. These are kind of thoughts that ran through my head today. Uh, number one, David brought needless pain and suffering to those around him because he wouldn't deal with his lust problem. He thought it was just all about him. He didn't realize that, uh, especially as a parent, that he was going to hurt his children and those he cared about and tear them apart. We can either, by obeying God, uh, bless those around us in love uh, or tear them apart. Number two, we shouldn't try to impress people. Whenever you're trying to impress somebody, just know you're on the wrong path. Um, the only buddy uh, worth anything is the Lord, and we should be all about glorifying him. The only big shot is God, you know, Jesus Christ, and we're his servants. Number three, it's better not to have something that's not in God's will for you than to manipulate your way to make it happen. It's better for you to go without the thing you really want if it's not God's will than for you to scheme and plot and manipulate so that you can get it. Amen? That's a good one. Number four. When all seems lost, the Lord stands by you even when it's your own fault. And lastly, it's good to cooperate with the love and, of God and when he's disciplining you to open your heart, to yield, to learn, to accept, to worship God in the tough times.